0: Welcome to the Redeemer East Harlem podcast. We pray this message leads you both to know and show the love of Christ in all areas of life. We will now dive into our scripture reading, followed by this week's message.
1: Today God speaks to us from the book of Galatians, chapter 3, verses 26 to 29, and from the book of Revelation, chapter 5, verses 11 through 13, and chapter 7, verses 9 through 10. Hoy Dios nos habla de Galatas 3, 26 a 29, y Apocalipsis capítulo 5, 11 a 13, y capítulo 7, 9 al 10. Todos ustedes son hijos de Dios mediante la fe en Cristo Jesús, porque todos los que han sido bautizados en Cristo se han revestido de Cristo. Ya no hay judío ni griego, esclavo ni libre, hombre ni mujer. Sino que todos ustedes son uno solo en Cristo Jesús. Y si ustedes pertenecen a Cristo, son la descendencia de Abraham y herederos según la promesa. Luego miré y oí la voz de muchos ángeles que estaban alrededor del trono, de los seres vivientes y de los ancianos. El número de ellos era millares de millares y millones de millones. Cantaban con todas sus fuerzas... Digno es el Cordero que ha sido sacrificado de recibir el poder, la riqueza y la sabiduría, la fortaleza y la honra, la gloria y la alabanza. Y oí a cuanta criatura hay en el cielo y en la tierra y al abajo de la tierra y en la mar, a todos en la creación que cantaban: al que está sentado en el trono y el Cordero, sean la alabanza y la honra la gloria y el poder, por los siglos de los siglos. Después de esto miré y apareció de una multitud tomada de todas las las naciones, tribus, pueblos y lenguas. Era tan grande que nadie podía contarla, estaban en pie delante del trono y del cordero, vestidos de túnicas blancas y con ramas de pama en la mano, gritaban a gran voz. La salvación viene de nuestro Dios, que está sentado en el trono y del cordero. Esta es la palabra del Señor. This is the word of the Lord.
0: Uh, in his book, The Beautiful Community, uh, Erwin Ince, who is a pastor in our denomination, uh, articulates the why and the how uh, the church ought to pursue diversity. Uh, Now, we're going to spend more time considering some of his thoughts a little bit later, but one of the key takeaways that he makes uh, is that uh, the the call of the church is for the church to be a place of unity in the midst of great diversity. It's a unity that occurs in the midst of differences, in the midst of diversity, and that the Christian faith actually has the most profound resources— for pursuing unity in the midst of great diversity. However, I think one of the things that we may know broadly about the church is that ironically, though the church has great resources to experience unity in the midst of diversity, oftentimes churches are some of the most segregated institutions of our society. Uh, Sociologist uh, Corey Edwards notes that as we speak right now, Churches are 10 times more segregated than the neighborhoods they are in, and they're 20 times more segregated than the nearby schools. Why is that? And how do we work against that which tends to produce disunity amongst God's people? Well, today we continue our series called The Resurrection. Uh, It's been a series that's focused on how the resurrection of Jesus brings clarity to life's most pressing issues. What we've said over and over again uh, is that 1 Corinthians 15, we believe to be true that uh, Paul speaks of, if, if Jesus did not raise from the dead, then our preaching is futile. All that we believe to be true is completely pointless and futile, and we're just wasting our time. But if the resurrection of Jesus did happen, then everything that the Bible teaches, everything that Jesus taught, everything that we believe to be true as Christians matters because Jesus rose from the dead. And today, we consider how the resurrection shapes our understanding of unity, particularly unity in the midst of great diversity. Because the Christian faith, Has a very unique understanding of diversity. The Christian faith is actually one of the most diverse faiths that the world has ever seen. And the reason being, if I might be so bold, as to why the Christian church broadly is the most diverse thing, uh, the most diverse institution that uh, the world has ever seen, is because of the resurrection of Jesus. And what I want to try to wrestle with is that while the church is the most diverse institution that the world has ever known, broadly, why is it so often that we experience disunity in local ways? I want to wrestle through that a bit and consider how the resurrection of Jesus helps us move through that disunity and instead to a place of unity in the midst of diversity. Let's consider that in this way. Let's consider the foundations of unity and diversity the problem of diversity, and then the true cost of unity, okay? So first, the foundations of unity in diversity. So again, in his book, uh, The Beautiful Community, I would highly recommend you read that book if you are interested in this topic. Uh, It really does a great job in um, articulating some of these things uh, in easily digestible kinds of ways. But something that he does in the book is he summarizes his overall thought in this sentence. Let me read this for you. He said, the ministry of reconciliation distri- uh, demonstrated in the local church by the gathering of people from diverse backgrounds, cultures, ethnicities, is the natural outworking of a rich covenantal theological commitment. Okay, So what he's saying is that the diversity that exists within local congregations or that ought to exist within, diverse con- or within local congregations flows out of some very important theological commitments meaning any diversity that we have is rooted in some theological commitments. What are those theological commitments? Well, there's a wide variety of them. I want to point out, however, three that, in my opinion, are three controlling doctrines, three doctrines that we must consider if we are to pursue any form of unity in the midst of diversity. And those three theological commitments are, one, the trinity— two, the Imago Dei, and three, the kingdom of God. All right, let me very quickly unpack those for us. Number one, the Trinity. Ince, he, uh, he starts off by looking at the Trinity, and I think rightly so. In order for us to experience what he calls beautiful community or what I'm calling unity in the midst of diversity, we need to look at the Trinity. And let me just read for you something that Ince says, and then we'll unpack it a bit more. But Ince says this, that the Lord is beautiful. Beauty is an attribute of God but one through which we are able to view the majesty of all other perfections. The truth is we only know beauty in relation to the one who is inherently beautiful. All beauty in the world is a derived beauty. The one who dwells in a holy place and a beautiful habitation wants to be known by us. So he reveals himself to us as the Lord who is one, Unity in diversity as Father, Son, and Spirit. So what Ince is saying, and rightly so, is that we can't really understand anything that is beautiful without looking at the one who is inherently beautiful, the one who creates beauty, and that includes the beauty of unity in the midst of diversity. So here's what I want us to see. Before talking about any kind of unity or any kind of diversity, we need to root it in God himself, Diversity flows out of the very nature of God himself. Now, whatever whatever other reasons one might pursue such thing, they're all second rate because God himself is unity in diversity, meaning, you know, as Christians, we believe in a triune God, three persons but one God. Meaning that the Father is not the Son, the Son is not the Spirit, and the Spirit is not the Father or the Son. They are distinct persons, and yet, as the Shema of Deuteronomy 6 tells us, the Lord is one. So we need to have this high-level commitment, because unity in diversity will only be accomplished when we see it as a means of reflecting God Himself. Now that reflection of God brings us to the second kind of controlling doctrine that we need to consider is that flowing out of the Trinity. Now we can take a look and rightly understand a doctrine known as the Imago Dei. This Imago Dei idea comes out of Genesis one twenty six, which is, of course a famous verse that said, "God let uh, God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness." Now let me just stop there for a second. Notice, if you will, if you know that verse, let me reread it to you. Notice, see if you notice anything interesting relating to the Trinity. God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness. It's interesting to me that even in Genesis 1, the very beginning of the Bible, you see the community of God in communion together. I mean, since the very beginning of the Bible, we see the Trinity. But as humans... We are made in his image, both body and soul, as reflections of him. I mean, we talked about that a bit last uh, last week. This means several things. Number one, that means that every person, as we talked about last week, has dignity and honor built into their very person as image bearers of God. But the other thing that it shows us is that where unity in diversity exists, we are actually at that moment most align with our nature as image bearers. That's striking to me that diversity, not homogeneity, is built into our nature. We are designed to be around others who are different, and as we are around them, experience a unity with them. Which brings us to that third controlling doctrine that I want to put in front of you, which is the kingdom of God. Uh, if we are to pursue any kind of unity in the midst of diversity, we need to understand what could be called our telos or our ultimate aim. For the Christian, what is your ultimate aim? This now brings us to our passages. Uh, Galatians three twenty-eight says this: We just heard it read that there is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male or female, for you are all one in Christ. Now, it's important to see what Paul is saying and what he is not saying in our passage there in Galatians 3. What Paul is not saying is that there are no longer distinctions among us. For Christians, um, there are distinctions, and it would be wrong to flatten everyone out as though the experience of the Jew or the Gentile is the same. They're not. Right? The experience, as he, as uh, Paul notes there in Galatians 3, the experience of the enslaved or the impressed is different than that of the free. The experience of women is different than men. Right? We still have these important distinctions, and it's not wrong to experience those distinctions. It's actually wrong to try and flatten everyone in pursuit of some kind of unity. But what he is saying is that in the kingdom of God, for those who are in Christ, there is unity. And that, that unity comes even in the midst of that great diversity. And probably the best picture of this is in our, uh, again, one of our passages there. In Revelation 7, one of my favorite verses, uh, in passages of Scripture rather, Revelation 7 is describing a heavenly worship service around the throne of God. And this is what it, this is what it says describing that heavenly service. It says, after, uh, this is uh, John's, uh, John's vision. He says, after this, I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every tribe, uh, nation, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. It goes on to say, and they cried out in a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and unto the Lamb. For the Christian, this is your tell us. This is your ultimate aim. This is where you are heading. This is the fullness of unity in diversity, a unity that worships before God. And the other thing I find so interesting about this passage is as you look around this room, we come from a variety of different backgrounds and ethnicities and experiences. And what strikes me is that for the Christian, you will take with you your ethnicity, in your experience, into eternity. And a proper kingdom of God theology leads Christians to make such realities, right? realities like what we're seeing in Revelation 7, present now. We've said this numerous times over the course of the series, but something that resonates so deeply with me is John Calvin's words about the role of the church, that the role of the church is to make the invisible kingdom of God visible now. And Revelation 7 is a picture of what the church will be in its fullest. And so now the church has this calling to be that kind of community where people of different, um, uh, na- from different tribes, nations, and tongues come together to worship before the throne. Revelation 7 ought to be something we experience to some degree now. And so to summarize all these theological commitments... the the foundations for uh, pursuing unity in the midst of diversity. I would put it this way. That we are created by one who is unity in diversity and that our ultimate aim is a kingdom marked by unity in diversity. So right now, we should also pursue that unity in the midst of diversity. This is the foundation. God has made us in such a way that we ought to experience this kind of reality. The problem, of course, is that though this is the ideal, and this is what God intends, there is a problem often with how we approach diversity. And as I noted earlier, there's often a problem with Christians being able to exist in unity across uh, lines of division and difference. And so we need to consider the problem of diversity. You know, today, you know, in our culture, just generally, there's a great emphasis on diversity, both in the church and beyond. There's a lot of emphasis right now on things like diversity training and diversifying staff, all of which um, isn't necessarily a bad thing. It's good to consider such things. But too often, there is this desire for diversity that doesn't take into account unity or the pursuits of unity. And it's important just to note that diversity and unity are not the same things. You can have diversity and still lack unity. And if the Christian ideal is unity in the midst of diversity, we need to consider how that can begin to break down. And to do that, I want to go on a little bit of a tangent that I promise uh, will make sense. But I want to tell you a little bit about my own personal story in relation to some of this. Uh, for, you know, some of you may know this. Well, actually, you all probably can recognize this right now. Some of you know the background of it. But I'm pretty racially, ethnically ambiguous. Uh, no one can ever really put their finger on it. Um, that's what happens when you come, you're a product of, of immigrants. And as I've often joked, my family was always terrible at keeping it in the same ethnic group. So there's a lot of mixing going on here. But the other thing that's interesting is though that has, that has been the case for me, I also grew up in a relatively kind of white culture uh, area of upstate New York. And so this was what was interesting for me growing up. I never really felt like I fit in anywhere, right? It was very clear that I was different. So for most of my life, I always felt like I was on the outside of dominant culture kind of looking in. On it, and even at times aspiring to be part of what I understood to be dominant culture, especially in the area that I lived in. And uh, though my family uh, really tried to approximate the norm uh, in that community, I was also very well aware of how different my family was than some of the other kids' families. Uh, my family's house always felt or smelled different uh, than everyone else's, especially when my mom would cook some of her more fragrant dishes. Um, My Thanksgiving table always included, always included rice and curry and hummus, and if I was lucky, kibit I have a Nagamese name that no one even knows about, really except my family and uh, all of my mom's extended family. uh, Call me by that name. No one else would even know about it. If you want to know, it's Sevilia, if you'd like to call me that from now on. (laughs) Um... And I've got all kinds of memories of some really uncomfortable things that happened uh, to my family. Just to give you some examples. And you don't have to feel bad for me, I just, as an example, I remember when a member of my family uh, married a white woman. Uh, I was to be in that wedding, and I vividly remember the disdain of her family toward my family at the wedding. Uh, It was so severe that my family, who had traveled thousands of miles from overseas to be there at the wedding, uh, they nearly left and just didn't even want to participate. I mean, that kind of thing seared in my brain. Uh, You know, that's one side of the family. The other side of my family has roots in the Middle East, and so my middle name is Syed, which has resulted in my randomly getting pulled from airport lines on numerous occasions since (laughs) 9-11. Uh, my life, I'm bringing this all up just to say, my life has been navigating these differences, right? Navigating what it's like to feel one way in one context while at the same time not feeling fully embraced or like you fit in in another context. And for those who are uh, from immigrant backgrounds or um, people of color in general, those kinds of things probably resonate. You probably got your own stories, right? Stories where assumptions are made about you or people treat you in particular kinds of ways because of certain assumptions. And you know that feeling of what it is to have to navigate different cultural differences. Some call it code switching, which tends to have a negative connotation. And I don't know, maybe it's negative, but I kind of think of it as a superpower, being able to code switch in that way, because what it does is inevitably makes very clear to you differences. And I don't want to ever assume that differences are necessarily a bad thing, but it's important to notice those differences. And as someone who's never really felt like he fit in anywhere in particular, I've noticed differences. Now fast forward many years, I came to New York, my family and I came to New York, this is our 14th summer, I believe that's right, Uh, and started pastoring up in the Bronx and was there for uh, many years. Uh, The point of all this being is that I have really spent much of my life in environments kind of on the outside, what felt like the outside, never feeling really embraced or welcomed by it. But then I had a bit of a shift, okay? Several years ago now, I started pastoring on the Upper East Side of Manhattan. Uh, It was a place and a culture that was completely foreign to me, right? It was the most extreme version of dominant culture that I'd ever experienced before in my life. And one of the unique parts of being uh, in that kind of context was, for a lot of my life, I had always been on the outside looking into a context like that, right? I never really felt like I was fully in it or welcomed by it. I always just kind of looked on the outside. But then I found myself on the inside, It was an interesting perspective to have where I was, again, once on the outside, now on the inside, and now I was having conversations that I had never had before in my life. And diversity was one of those conversations. Ironically, spent my whole life never really feeling like I fit anywhere in particular, and yet I'd had very few conversations about the need to pursue diversity. That is a uniquely, that is a unique conversation that tends to happen on the inside Because there's this desire and a good desire to pursue diversity. And I'm telling you all of this. You might be wondering why I'm rambling on about this. I'm telling you all of this because for me, that shift kind of forced me to have to rethink how I understand something like diversity. It's not as simple as attempting to try to get people who are from different backgrounds and different experiences together in a room because... What that too often can do is when we don't consider those experiences as someone comes in, it does begin to do what I said we didn't want to do, which was to flatten. We don't want people to feel like their experiences and the things that they come from, their cultures are flattened. We want them to be able to experience them fully, to be who God has made them, even in the midst of a place that might not necessarily resonate culturally with them, And that tension has been a tension and a journey that I have been on for several years. And it's been something that, we'll, we'll talk about this a little bit, but that has very much influenced even how we've considered what Redeemer East Harlem was to be. Because we don't want to just pursue diversity for diversity's sake. What we want to see is unity in the midst of that diversity. One of the uh, best examples of how this can break down And how this has not gone well, the problem of diversity, uh, is an example that we looked at a couple of weeks ago in Galatians 2. Uh, If you remember that story, you had Paul, the Apostle Paul, confronting Peter, the Apostle Peter, for undermining unity through what Paul considered a rejection of the gospel. Peter had allowed Jewish Christians to marginalize Gentile Christians. And he remained silent when additional requirements were given to the Gentiles to be, quote-unquote, truly Christian. So in essence, they were being required to, do, to be more like the Jewish people if they were to be true Christians. And Peter had allowed this segregation to take place. Right? You had this diversity, but there was no unity because some other things took precedence over unity. And these were the two things. If you remember the story, essentially what it came down to is it came down to bad theology and cultural superiority. Those were the two things that created a big divide between the Jews and the Gentiles. On the bad theology side, there was bad theology that claimed that the Gentiles needed to adhere to uh, Jewish dietary laws and um, purity laws. And Peter knew that was wrong. It's interesting to me. He knew the gospel, he knew that requiring such things of Gentiles was not right. And yet he allowed the teaching to persist. persist. And maybe even more so, he allowed the consequences of that kind of bad teaching to persist by by keeping these two groups separate. But then not only was it bad theology, it was also a cultural superiority. Peter, if you remember the story, he took the side of those with bad theology Because he was scared of them, and he preferred being with his own people where he felt safe instead of pursuing those and drawing those in who were different. Peter, in a lot of ways, allowed bad theology to exist out of this tribalism that was going on at the time, and Paul has to call him out on that hypocrisy and tells him that he is out of step with the gospel for allowing that kind of thing to happen. Now, since the time of Peter and Paul, the same error, the fundamental same error, has still today created continued disunity amongst the church. I mean, just give you an example. An example that at this point I'm sure you are well aware of if you've been part of Redeemer Time, But just as an example, the black church in America exists for one single reason. The only reason the black church exists is because they were excluded from white denominations many years ago, and so as a result, they started their own church. This was rooted in bad theology that believed that God had specially blessed or favored one race or another over another, and I know that most today would reject that bad theology, but it is interesting to me that the consequences of that bad theology still persist today. Generations upon generations later... We still have these deep divides. All that all of which points back to heresies many years ago. The church, in many ways, has allowed that kind of division to continue to persist by not pursuing diversity, which is one of the reasons—or unity, rather—which is one of the reasons. Again, back to Corey Edwards, uh, sociologist Corey Edwards, in her work, it's one of the reasons why churches are still some of the local churches are still some of the most segregated institutions that exist today. It's because it shows the extent to which we never really dealt with the consequences of bad theology, which then really turned into the development of just cultural preferences over the years. But the question that burdens me is how do we begin to undo some of that alienation? You know, it's a question that, have, that many have wrestled with and If you were to try to trace the history of it, it's really been a question people have deeply been wrestling with since the early 90s. But when, and in in the early 90s, you saw a lot of concerted efforts to try to create multicultural, interracial churches, which again is not a bad thing. It's, It's the ideal. It's what God desires for his people to be, unity in the midst of diversity. And as a pastor planting a church like Redeemer East Harlem, I've wrestled, and also one who's wrestled with a lot of this stuff for years, it's been a central concern of mine How do we create a church environment where we experience unity in the midst of great diversity? And it doesn't take much uh, to just look around the room to know that we have diversity. But how do we ensure unity? You know, we considered the fact that Christians, again, we ought to worship. Uh, We will worship with this great diversity. And yet so often we don't see it happen. And that burdens me now because it's something that I do believe that God calls us to do. Now, in in talking about these kinds of things and having this kind of diverse worship experience with people that are different than ourselves, one of the things that every time I talk about it, inevitably, uh, people ask me, well, does that mean that there shouldn't be churches that are specific to particular cultures, right? Am I talking about getting rid of all kind of distinctly cultural types of churches? And I would say no, I don't necessarily believe that that's the case, but because there have been really good reasons for segregated churches to exist. You know, back to the Peter and Paul situation. You know, as I've thought about that, would anyone blame the Gentiles for starting their own congregation? I don't think so. They were victims of bad theology and cultural superiority, and so in order for them to not be marginalized, I, I could totally see them kind of creating their own church. Would that, though, be God's ideal? Would that be something that God would look upon as favorable and what he desires for his church? No. Though it might be necessary at times, the ultimate goal should be pushing beyond. The ultimate goal should be the Galatians 3 idea that all of these walls are torn down and we see one another as part of the body of Christ, worshiping together in diversity, but in the midst of unity. And so for me, I've had to, again, had to wrestle with that. What does it then mean for us to pursue unity in the midst of a great diversity? And I think it's clear what it takes. It takes a heavy cost. Experiencing unity in the midst of diversity is costly, which is the final point here, the true cost of unity. Look again at the passages in our readings uh, that speak of this coming worship service. Uh, that I was describing earlier. Uh, In Revelation 5, if you guys want to maybe put that up, it might be helpful just to see. In Revelation 5, there's a proclamation that says, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. And then in Revelation 7, which again, one of my favorites, remember the ultimate aim for all Christians is this worship service that's coming, a worship service that's unity in the midst of a great diversity. It says this, What is the song that they are singing in this worship service? They are singing, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and unto the Lamb. Interesting song to be singing. A couple of things that I want to point out there. First, just note, Jesus is on his throne. He's resurrected and reigning in power. But Jesus, though he's resurrected, do you see how he is described in both Revelation 5 and also Revelation 7? He's described as a lamb. Now, that's striking to me. What does it mean for Jesus to be a lamb? Well, it's describing his role as the one who died for our sins in order that we might be reconciled to God. That's what it means to be the lamb. And that means that in heaven, right? This is the heavenly scene, Revelation 7, 5 and 7. That means that in heaven... You and I will remember our sins that required the slain lamb of God, all while experiencing the power of that lamb resurrected. The diverse unity seen at the throne of God came at a great price. And even in that worship service, we are reminded of that great price that was paid, the death of the Son of God who is now resurrected in power, and now, as a result, draws his people together. All right, we've said that the church is to be a visible reflection of this invisible kingdom. And this unity in diversity in that kingdom was accomplished through the death and the resurrection of Jesus. It's how God has drawn his people back together across dividing lines. It's through the work of Jesus. And though we will experience that in its fullest one day, If now we can see the extent to which Jesus went to ensure that we are brought together as one people across many dividing lines, it will change the way that we view how we worship even today. When we see Jesus as the focal point of this heavenly picture it begins to shape for us, I think, and begins to clarify for us the ways that we have allowed maybe bad theology to keep us separate or the ways that we have kept cultural superiority as the reason or the justification for why we are distinct. But when we see Jesus as the central figure who paid a great cost for his people to be unified together, my prayer is that we begin to see our local congregations differently. And here's what I find uh, important for us as we consider this. You know, Christians understand um, that there is this dynamic in our theology where there are certain things that Jesus has accomplished, and they are done and they are finished. But there's also an extent to which we haven't fully experienced them yet. And so we strive and we pursue to experience those things. We call it the already not yet. There are things that Jesus has done that we will experience in its fullest one day. And Christians know this a- across the board, right? We we're told that we are the righteousness of God, and yet we're going to spend a lifetime pursuing righteousness. You know, we're, we're told that we are freed from the shackles of sin. We are no longer slaves to sin. And yet we're going to spend a lifetime trying to learn what it means to live into that freedom until one day we experience it fully. We're told that we are justified. And yet we, spend, we will spend a lifetime combating our tendencies toward condemnation until one day we experience that justification in its fullness. And this idea of unity in the midst of diversity, I think it's the same. That for Christians, there, there is a unity in, in our midst that is accomplished when we look upon Jesus and we strive toward that unity, no matter how diverse we might be, making the invisible kingdom visible now. And here's what I want us to take away. Jesus paid the ultimate cost to ensure that that is the kind of experience we were going to have into eternity. But like all other aspects of the Christian walk, there are going to be costs associated to us in order for us to experience what he has ultimately purchased. And so my question is going to be for us as a church, as we continue to experience unity in the midst of diversity, what are the kinds of costs that we are willing to pay in order to ensure that we experience that kind of unity now? And hear me, there are going to be costs. You do not experience true unity in the midst of diversity unless everybody in the room is in some way willing to give of themselves for the good of someone else. And sometimes that means laying down preferences. Sometimes that means stepping into the experience of someone else so that you can learn about their culture, their experiences. It means righting wrongs that might be amongst us. It means addressing the bad theology or the cultural superiorities that might exist it means paying some kind of cost so that we can experience what Jesus has accomplished for us fully and completely now. Now, as a church, let me just close with this. As a church, one of our core, our five core values as a church, which you can find all of them on the website if you'd like to, but one of our five core values is Unity. Let me just read for you quickly that that statement, that we are a church that believes God's love breaks down racial, ethnic, socioeconomic, and cultural barriers and brings unity through the power of the gospel. It's important to note that nowhere in that statement are we saying anything about diversity. The important core element is unity. We are seeking unity because as we do break down, as we trust that the the gospel message breaks down the dividing lines of race and ethnicity and socioeconomic and cultural barriers, as those come down, we will experience diversity. And as we trust in the work of Jesus in us and in others, we will experience that unity. That's my goal for our church. All of this happens as a result of what Jesus has done for us. It's that, it's the, his work, his resurrection in particular, it's the power of his resurrection that allows for such a thing to take place. And I wonder, how often are we trusting in that power so that as a church community, we do experience this unity in the midst of diversity? My question would be that I, I ask for myself and me, I would even extend to all of you who consider REH to be part of your home. If we're gonna pursue unity and diversity, I wonder... Could there be, is there bad theology that exists that we need to address? Maybe. Are there cultural superiorities that assume a preferential way to uh, worship God? Does that exist? Maybe. And isn't alienating people that we need to be willing to hear from and learn from and experience from to, to bear that cost, as it were? Maybe. Maybe. I mean, these are the kinds of things that I think about, I want to wrestle with. If REH is part of your, uh, is your church and you feel like you are part of this community, I encourage you to also consider those types of things so that together we can be striving toward that Revelation 7 picture now. I trust that the Lord's already done so much. I've in so many ways been so very grateful for the kinds of unity that we've gotten to experience in the midst of our diversity. And I want it all the more. And I trust that there's more that God wants to do in our midst. And that the Spirit of God, the one who raised Jesus from the dead, is the same Spirit that's working amongst us. So when we trust Him, and may we ultimately experience the beauty of unity in the midst of diversity. Let's pray. Father, we thank You that You are a God who has created. And You've created in unique ways. You have created us as unique people that you see our race and ethnicity and our culture. You see our experiences. And though there are a hundred different ways that you call us, uh, a hundred different ways that we could potentially be divided, even as I look uh, at this room, there are so many different things that could be said about why we shouldn't be worshiping together. But God, because of the power of the resurrection the power of the spirit that is working amongst us. We trust that you are doing something here. That it's not just a room full of diverse faces and experiences, but there's also a unity that's developing as we trust the work of Jesus. Thank you for listening to the Redeemer East Harlem podcast. For more information on our church, and how you can support what God is doing through our church, go to www.reh.nyc.